0: Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Dyker. This is episode 10, Teaching on the Side. Thanks for joining me. So this episode marks a small milestone for the podcast. It's episode 10. A lot of podcasts don't make it to 10 episodes, so I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm glad that you all are still listening. And I promise there are a lot of great topics in the works. I'm also proud to announce the first sponsor for the podcast, This week's show is sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds, but more about CSBA later in the show. The topic this week is about teaching, whether it's teaching college as an adjunct or teaching at a CLE. My guest is Jared Krukar, an appellate attorney at DPW Legal in Tampa and an adjunct professor at the University of Tampa. My discussion with Jared is coming up next. (music) Jared, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Thank you for having me again. You have the distinction of being the first person to be on twice because you were, ai a, don't know if we call it a guest or a guest host, right, on episode four.
1: Well, it was fun, and I'm uh, very glad that you actually thought to ask me back. <laughs> so
0: this is, this is your first guesting spot, so we'll, yes. we'll call it that. And just to remind everybody, you are an appellate specialist at DPW Legal here in Tampa. Yes, sir. And what kind of work do you do?
1: Uh, we do generally pretty much anything civil appellate. A um, little bit of trial support, a little bit of trial work, kind of what most of the appellate practitioners on this show have done, a little bit of everything. Yeah, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Mm-hmm. So anything that sounds like an appeal is good, right? Pretty much. And of course, we also have an intellectual property side to our practice, although uh, my partner, Deneen Waslick handles most of that. And Deneen has been on the show, too. Yes, she has. Yes, she has. Uh, what, a couple weeks ago? Yep.
0: I I lose track of time because sometimes (laughs) I don't record these in real time, you know. Well, we're in double
1: digits now for episodes. We are. This
0: is episode 10, so it's a little bit of a milestone. Congratulations. Thank you. So the reason I'm having you here this week is a little bit different. Um, You are an adjunct at the University of Tampa, and you teach some college classes. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that because, you know, I do that as well. Mm -hmm. And people ask me a lot about... You know that experience, and so I thought it might be something that people would be interested in hearing a little bit about. Um, so, tell me what what exactly are you teaching at UT?
1: Uh, currently, I teach with the Law, Justice, and Advocacy minor. I teach again currently. I teach Intro to Law, Justice, and Advocacy. Uh, it's pretty much a it's a combination of a survey course and a writing course. It tries to give the students a little bit about um, learning to read the law, learning sources of law, and then also exposing them to different subject areas within the law. Hmm. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, I two semesters so far, I'm coming up on my third and trying to redo my syllabus as we speak. <laughs> well, that's good. So tell me, do you
0: remember when did you have a first have a desire to teach? Is this something you've always wanted to do?
1: I've, I've always loved teaching. Um, in law school, I taught a, a research lab. Um, so when you have your research and writing class at Stetson, at least at the time, they also put you into a research lab, which was mostly taught by professors, but there were a couple sections of it that were taught by students who were uh, teaching fellows with the writing program. So I was a teaching fellow. I was a professor's assistant um, in that program and taught my research lab. And it kind of just kept growing from there. And how
0: did you wind up obtaining the position at uh, UT?
1: Lots of pestering. So a good friend of mine, Laura Rowe, who was a, well, just until recently a staff attorney at the Second District Court of Appeal, she uh, taught a class at the at, un, at the University of Tampa. And she was looking for a guest speaker at one point, and I jumped at the opportunity because I – love doing things like that and uh, basically just kept a bug in her here anytime you have an opening or anytime you want me to come by let me know um, and I think I guess taught in her class for two or three semesters in a row and just kept just kept bugging her uh, so when there was an opening she she gave me a call and uh, she had already talked with her um, the our supervisor there and uh, had me apply
0: it's funny I, I sort of had a, a similar experience i since I graduated law school, I also knew I had an interest in doing some teaching and wanted to teach at uh, St. Petersburg College because they have a ABA-accredited paralegal mm-hmm. program there. And I knew a lot of the people who were involved, you know, at least tangentially in the program, and thought it would be easy to you know, get some sort of position there, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it took a lot of years of a lot of pestering. Uh, I think it took me about six or seven years to get my foot in the door because there were a lot of judges who wanted those positions and a lot of other people. And once I once I finally got my foot in the door, I've been I've been doing it for. I sort of lost track. I think it's at least eighteen years.
1: I think you're coming but, up in two decades.
0: Yeah, it? but it took um, it took a long time to get my foot in the door, and then they were kind of, you know, I kind of got some sort of like, gee. We wish we had known you were interested in this earlier, <laughs> but I guess that's you know that's how it goes everywhere. I
1: guess pretty much, but it, it seems as as if being an adjunct for that one or two class a, a week position is something that's um, highly sought after by many many attorneys or many people generally. Um, but it's it's really kind of about how you know or who you know and being in the right place at the right time. So. Now, I know
0: at Saint Pete College they use adjuncts pretty extensively. You know, being a community college, and they are a four-year program now and have been for a while. And actually, paralegal is one of the things that they do offer a four-year degree in. But uh, adjuncts, especially in the law programs, are used pretty extensively. There are a few full-time faculty, but a
1: lot of adjuncts. Is is UT similar? I can't speak to the whole of UT, but the. The Law, Justice, and Advocacy minor, I believe, is all adjuncts. So um, teaching along with me is Judge Sleet, uh, who I believe right now teaches criminal procedure. Um, Laura Rowe, who teaches a variety of subjects. I believe next semester she's teaching appellate advocacy. Um, and then you have other staff attorneys. And you have several other professors who are all practicing attorneys as of in their full-time lives um, who come by and teach. And, and it seems like that's the... Uh, that's what they seek over there: is attorneys who can, people who can say what practicing law really is and are doing it on a daily on a daily basis. Yeah, I do think that the students really appreciate that. You know, they appreciate being
0: taught by practicing lawyers who are more than just academics, right? Who are actually out in the world doing uh, real lawyer stuff and can share those kinds of experiences. I think the students know the difference. And I think they really appreciate that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I try to bring in whatever I'm working on a little bit. Obviously, I'm not bringing in the details of specific cases, but I try to give them a flavor of what I'm doing on a daily basis. And a good chunk of my class is devoted to bringing in different attorneys from different subject areas. So when we get into that section of the course where we're talking about criminal law one day and we might be talking about intellectual property another day, um, I'll try to find somebody who specializes in those areas to come in and speak with the students and, and give them another, another face, another person to ask questions of who really knows that area and lives that area and can give them the best feel about what it's really like that anybody can. Of course, what can you do in an, in an hour or two-hour-long class? But, sure. But just that little bit of flavor, since my class is the intro class to the, the minor, and then they can carry on with that and decide where they want to go.
0: And what is a typical class schedule like for you? Is it uh, a couple days a week, daytimes, evenings? How does that work?
1: So my class is two days a week, two hours each. Um, my class is so far, and I think next semester will still be between 4 to 6 p.m. Hmm. Um, there are other sections of my class that were taught from 6 to 8 the same days, Um but it, most of them are in the evenings. Next semester, I know we are offering a section during the during the uh, late morning, so there will be one during the day. But most of them are in the late afternoons to evenings to accommodate the the lawyer schedules, and probably to accommodate the college students'
0: schedules too, right? I don't know many of them that want to get up <laughs> real early. <laughs> Absolutely, at Saint Pete College, uh, the law courses tend to be in the evening. And my courses are always from like seven to nine forty one day a week, which is great for me. Sometimes I feel bad for the students because that's a long period of time. but
1: Well, you said your course was part of the paralegal program, right? Yes, so you probably have a lot of I'm, I'm guessing you have a lot of practicing people who are part- time paralegals or you know not yet registered but seeking to get that registration.
0: Yeah, it's one of the challenges of teaching in a program like that. It's, and I don't mean challenge in a bad way. I mean it's just challenge in the challenge kind of way, which is that I get a lot of different backgrounds. I have some students who are in early college, still in high school. I have some that have just graduated high school. Uh, I have a lot that are returning, second career type people who are looking for some more employable skills than maybe what they already have, and I have. Uh, paralegals who are working in the field who are coming back because they want to get a degree so that they can get certified or you know somehow advance their their career where they are or or look for a better job or whatever the case may be so i have a huge range of backgrounds of people um, and a lot of them are doing it part-time in the evening so like i said it's it's good for me um it's still you know as a lawyer is challenging to make sure that you're available every evening for a 16 week semester but um at least where i teach uh, they are pretty good about finding substitute if you need somebody to cover a class somebody will cover a class for you and, and that does happen to me at least once or twice a semester that you know i can't make that class and, and somebody covers for me so do you right. do you have some sort of back backup like that
1: uh, I, my backup is mostly my fellow professors um and, and vice versa We're, we kind of jump in on each other's classes when we can just to hang out a little bit. Um, which is always fun because even amongst the professors, we all have different backgrounds. So just being available and being able to hop into anybody else's class, since, again, they are undergrad classes, and uh, a lot of them are things that all of us have enough experience with to kind of cover on short notice, we kind of just jump in and out um, as we need be. And in my first two semesters, I haven't really had to go beyond that um, to actually find Find a find a substitute in any official track. Nor, nor have any of the professors I've worked with, as far as I know, I've I've substituted a couple of classes, and I'm happy to do it.
0: Now, is there a, more of a typical student profile at UT? Is it is it uh, you know I, I've sort of told you my my experience runs. Yeah, the, you know, yeah.
1: I, I was going to respond to that. So uh, my my student profile, and again, in all the other classes I've kind of jumped into, um, it is much more. Younger college student before first college career. age students It is um, One thing I've been pleasantly surprised by Is the amount of Diversity in the classes In every respect but that um, we, We've had I had a, a student from Kenya Last semester Who was uh, really interesting to speak with him And find out how the US legal system As we talked about Compares to what he had in Kenya um, A lot of similarities mm. uh, Surprisingly um, we have students who are athletes. We have students who are on scholarships. We have students, but no, just, just so many different interesting students from all over the place. Um, the University of Tampa brings in students from, not, I mean, other countries, a few, but, but all over the nation. Most of them are not from here. Um, it's probably very unlike St. Petersburg College in mm-hmm. that respect mm-hmm. and probably a lot unlike USF and even UF and Florida State. Um, where a large proportion of them are from Florida, I would say a greater proportion of my students were from other states. Most of them from up north, unsurprisingly, University of Tampa is a beautiful place to visit.
0: Sounds like a good place, right? To spend four
1: years. Exactly, exactly. Um, but just just a broad variety of, of eager young minds.
0: So, what would you say is the time commitment for this class? I mean, I, I know uh, for me. That question depends a lot on how many times you've taught the class, right? the 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 answer is very different the first time you teach a class than every other time. But, but generally speaking, you know, once you've once you're in the groove a little bit, um, how many hours of how many hours of contact hours do you have? And then, how
1: much time would you say you spend uh, preparing? So, the contact hours are the easiest to to discuss. So, I've got two two hour classes a, a week for. The fourteen to sixteen week semester, I think the official semester is fourteen weeks then an exam week after that, but around about twenty eight to thirty classes total I think is uh what we average and then uh, usually there's a few minutes before then and because i'm I'm off campus and I don't necessarily keep an office on campus, I usually try to offer uh, office hours or basically just my general availability after class uh, time and there are there's probably up to 10 times a semester or so that I'm there for an hour, two hours, even at times three hours as we approach the uh, final big project, um, (laughs) after class, just, just working with whoever wants to talk. Um, so that's the easier question to answer. Preparation. I'd say preparation for the class. Probably two to three hours per class. Um, and that's just strict preparation for lecture. Mm-hmm. That doesn't incorporate grading.
0: Grading, right? And you mentioned that there's a writing component.
1: So, so my class has a writing component. So um, the
0: grading time is not insignificant.
1: How many students, roughly? Twenty-five students. Wow. And it, it usually drops down to, I say usually, you know, in my, in my vast experience of two semesters. But it, a couple will drop out halfway through the semester, uh, too late for anybody to refill the spot. So they usually end up with 22 or 23 students. Grading is significant. They have – in my class, we do a bunch of case briefs. So the students learn to read briefs – or read cases and brief them, basically trying to teach them how to break down a decision so they can understand reading law there mm-hmm. on out. Um, then after that, we start working on parts of a mock trial. So, they have a mock trial brief, which would be kind of you're just unbiased general bench memo, or maybe, um, or maybe you know your, the brief you would hand your partner before trial, that kind of thing. Not, not not argumentative, not persuasive, but tries to lay out the arguments for both sides. And so the the bench memo will identify who the parties are in this closed universe case that they're going to have what each party's role is, the facts of the case, the elements of the cause of action. What is the cause of action? The defenses to the cause of action, the facts supporting and, and undermining those defenses on uh, an opening statement, a closing statement in the three to five minute range for each of those. So it's, it's not an insignificant project. Um, And it's something that they actually have – to date, I've had them do three drafts of that. Uh, They do a first draft and then – which I heavily grade, and that takes us a given amount of time. Uh, A second draft that they do a peer review on, so they try to get um, the input of other students. And also that's my way of letting them share ideas and see where they may be going astray uh, in between what I've given them and what we talked about in class. And then the final draft that's for a heavy grade. Um, so it's an extensive project and grading takes a few days, really, if I, if I could probably, if I looked at it straight, probably a few full-time days to grade all of those papers and give the amount of feedback I think is appropriate that will be actually helpful to them in future classes and potentially law school. So
0: today's show is sponsored by commercial surety bond agency nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state in state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. They can be reached on the web at www.commercialsurety.com or you can call them toll-free at 877-810-5525. And if you want to know a little bit more about CSBA and you haven't already, Please go back and listen to episode nine, where I talked to Dan Huckabee, the president of CSBA, about supersedious bonds and a little bit about how that industry works. Uh, Dan is a great guy. CSBA is a great company, and I'm really happy to have them as a sponsor. Well, so that gets me to the next thing that that people always ask about, which is, you know, I, I'm assuming that you, like me, get paid for doing this work. <laughs> I don't know if we need to say exactly. It's easy enough to determine on the Internet, uh, not not an impressive amount of money. But certainly this is not something that anybody um, that, that works the kind of
1: jobs we do necessarily does for the money, right? <laughs> right. Um, actually, I knew, knowing that question was coming up, I thought about that today and thought of a – a way to potentially relate it. I would say it's what I get paid for a semester at the University of Tampa is comparable to what I get paid on a biweekly basis for my law firm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, probably, there's probably a few hundred dollars difference, but, but it's, right. it's within that realm. So when you so, figure out
0: the hourly rate, it doesn't make a lot of financial sense.
1: I, I'd rather not think about that <laughs> part of it.
0: That's right. <laughs> Let's not do that math, right? The question becomes then why? Why do we do it? Um, what What are the benefits to taking on something like this? Because we're not doing it for the money. Uh, why do you do it?
1: No, there's there's actually several reasons why I do it. Um, one, I do love to teach. I, I love to educate people. I love to help people improve themselves. Um, and it's all that. It's made all that much better when it's when it's a student, when it's somebody who's still trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, One of the things I love the most about teaching at the University of Tampa, as opposed to possibly a law school, is that these students don't have any skin in the game yet, except that they've gone to college. They're still trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. Um, They're potentially not jaded by a first-year law school experience. (laughs) Right. They're not in competition with anybody um, to improve their rank in the class, or at least not like law school anyways. Um, They're really just students who haven't had any exposure to law and are just, for the most part, interested to learn. And it's so refreshing to be talking with people in that position in life um, a couple times a week. It it gives you a different outlook on your own practice and and how you perceive the law, seeing what they take away from the issues. It's a learning experience for me as well as them um and, and i just love working with them and and when something clicks that's a complicated concept and and they're happy and you're happy and everybody's everybody's happy it's 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 great and for the most part that's my general experience with 95% of my students is they're it's it's a tough road for them my class is not easy um but it's not designed to be it's designed to be educational, and hopefully fun, but not easy. Right. Um, and they get that after the first couple weeks thinking that I'm just a really hard professor. They get that, <laughs> and they, they, they see that I'm there to work with them as long as they need to be, um, to talk with them as, as much as they need, um, to really just see them improve, and that's when their outlook changes on the class, and we all just work together from there on out. It's a It's a lot of fun.
0: You know, it's funny, I sort of... I approach this as a little bit of a hobby, right? I mean, which is understating the importance of what what we're doing a little bit, but it's one of these things that, yes, it's nice that you get paid something, and that makes it somewhat more palatable, uh, but really, if you don't enjoy it. If you don't like doing it, it's it's not worth it. If if you're looking at it as a job, if it's a slog, if it's something that that you don't look forward to doing, there's really no good reason to do it. Because we could stay at work and bill a few more hours and make more money, uh, right? And 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 be more productive in that sense. But I find you know, like I said, I the classes start at seven o'clock, and sometimes I'm rushing out of here at. Because so I'm in Tampa, but I teach in Clearwater, so I'm rushing out of here at six o'clock to try and get to a seven o'clock class, and it's exhausting, and I'm tired. But I get there, and the three hours or two and a half hours go by very quickly because there's something energizing about being there especially if it's a night where I really enjoy the material. You know, I just love it. And, you know, you really spend at the end of that two and a half, three hours. Absolutely.
1: I would just think I agree with everything (laughs) you're saying.
0: But it feels great while you're doing it, you know. And then you get those, it's not every week, but you get those moments a lot of times towards the end of the semester where people say, look, you know, this class has inspired me to stay in the program or to do more or I really want to work in this field or, you know, and those kinds of things are great um, or sometimes what's really cool, having done it as long as I've done it, you see students out in the real world, you know, and, and they're working for the, they're working in the clerk's office or they're working for another law firm or they're applying for a job at your law firm or something. And, right. and that's really cool to see people and they say, you know, and they say great things about, Hey, you know, thanks for doing what you did. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm here. And those are all really good hit you in the feels kind
1: of moments. There's absolutely a ton that I can relate to among uh, of of everything you just said. Um, It's absolutely a hobby, and and it's an important hobby, and it's one that can impact students' lives. But it is it is a hobby. It has to be a hobby for us. Um, The great thing about it is it's a hobby that at least pays for itself. um, Is a way to think about it, as opposed to picking another hobby where you have to go buy the equipment and you're you're, like
0: podcasting, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) like podcasting uh as we sit here with all these nice digital uh digital meters and things around here um but you know it's a hobby that your only your cost is time and effort but that's it um and that's not so bad of a hobby it's it's not like jet skiing or boating or whatever other expensive hobby you can have and i've had many of those lord <laughs> knows um woodworking all the tools that i have sitting in my my shed and this is a hobby that pays for itself and improves other people's lives too. And what's wrong with that? Nothing, right?
0: No. And I do think from a selfish perspective, as far as you know career development, that sort of thing, it is um, there's something to be gained from that too, right? I mean, when you were standing in front of a group of people who are hanging on every word. Uh, more or less <laughs> for a couple of hours <laughs> and expecting you to be knowledgeable and have the answers and you have, you are speaking extemporaneously you know sometimes for hours at a time I try not to I try and break it up with other things but it definitely is good practice for the things that we do of speaking uh, that way uh, adapting to questions you know adapting your presentation as you go it's you know it's not exactly oral argument, but it's not um, it's not for nothing either
1: no any public speaking is is good experience for what we do and and uh, of course we don't get in front of courts as often as we'd like and don't get to practice on a regular basis so it's another way to practice your speaking
0: now I'm curious does your uh, does u t provide you with any particular training on teaching you know is there uh, do they require any sort of um, I don't want to say continuing legal education but <laughs> continuing education education you know what I mean is, is someone teaching you how to be a better teacher
1: University of Tampa offers um, many educational opportunities throughout the semester and as time goes on different ones pop up um, they also have a vast online resource uh, built into the system where there, there's information on almost every topic you could think of Um, there are other online resources where you can watch classes and whatnot. So there is plenty of training to be had to the extent that you want to use it. Um, there's very little in the way of mandatory training, but I don't think that's a, as major of an issue for adjuncts such as ourselves, where we're there to improve as, as teachers as well. So, um, I pick up what I can and when I, and when when I can, um, But I'm also just happy to be there and and running through the class. And they offer – basically what I'm trying to say is they offer all the support that you could possibly want without a ton of requirements because they understand how busy we are in our our daily lives.
0: Especially adjuncts.
1: Especially adjuncts. Mm -hmm. I I don't know how those – I don't know that that statement would hold up for their their full-time professors. Actually, I'm fairly certain it wouldn't, but I wouldn't be the person to speak on that.
0: Yeah, I think that St. Pete College is the same. There are a limited number of things that are absolutely required of me to do, and most of that is, like, security awareness training and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. But there's a lot of other training available, uh, and because, like, in particular because the, uh, the paralegal program is ABA accredited, there are certain guidelines of training that they want you to do on a yearly basis and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it is very... Um, there's a lot of resources and I, I wish like you, I had more time to take advantage of those things because I am interested in, in fine tuning those skills. Um, you know, maybe someday, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) What do you see as your, as the future
1: for you at teaching at this level? Is this something you're going to continue to do? I would love to continue to do this as long as I, as long as I can. I've, Even when I was in law school, I I kind of always wanted to – in the future, I saw myself being the person who goes to his practice during the day and a couple times a week picks up a class and teaches a class. And I'm very fortunate to have been able to do that at this point in my career um, and not having to wait until I was – I think as I imagined myself in, in my law school dreams, it was kind of like 55, 60, 65 years old. And I've been able to cut that short a little bit and I'm I'm very glad to have been able to do that. To get the jump start. Right. And who knows, this this may turn into uh this may turn into the retirement um the retirement that I envision possibly one day is you know, retire from the practice of law and go into teaching law. Maybe it's a retirement at fifty five or sixty, but it's not really retirement, it's just
0: Sure. It's a it's a change and something at that point you've got a lot of experience doing and yeah no that sounds great right. i I could see myself doing that uh, as well there's you know I'm sure that you and I can't appreciate all the pressures that are on full time faculty people um but uh we can appreciate the pressures that are on full time lawyers <laughs> <laughs> and there may be
1: not you know the pressures may be different uh
0: but that might be okay too <laughs> yeah
1: we all have a little bit of different pressure in the different areas of our lives so just switching it up a little bit it wouldn't be so bad.
0: Now, what about teaching other places? Um, I know you and I are both actively involved in the Florida Bar's appellate practice section, and you and I both, over time, have been involved in the in the CLE committee of the section, and in planning and participating in in uh, CLE uh, presentations and such. What do you see as the benefits as appellate lawyers of participating in that process of being a presenter at a CLE? Because I do think I think appellate lawyers are particularly um, well-suited for this type of thing because the nature of our practice and the way we uh, prepare for things and the way we conduct oral argument and all that, I think it is a, skills that translate well into a teaching environment.
1: That makes sense. We're, we're you know we typically have to be analytical. We're limited to a subject matter, um, although we we think outside of the box. It's always within the confines of what the law could provide us, and that's kind of those are all um, beneficial factors for for teaching. And and indeed, actually, at the University of Tampa, the professors in the intro to law program. Up until this semester, at least for the past two semesters, were all appellate attorneys and one appellate judge. Mm-hmm. So I, n- I
0: noticed that I meant to comment on that before. That it certainly there does seem to be an overrepresentation of appellate lawyers, and
1: that may be part of the who you know uh, sure. aspect of it. But yeah, but I absolutely. think it's also I think it also relates to the mindset involved and the analytical. And theoretical um, thought processes that we all kind of get involved with. We're, we're not we're not typically doing the nitty gritty of discovery and whatnot um, every day. We're able to. I'm not saying I don't want to say we're able to. We we gravitate towards speaking about broad concepts and interesting legal issues that apply to everybody. Um, or, on the other end, we gravitate towards strictly applying rules of procedure because that's what we know and that's what we're going to do to try to establish or undermine an argument that there was an error of procedure in the trial court when we're arguing on appeal. Um, so, I think that teaching at a college suits itself well for an appellate, somebody who has an appellate um, state of mind. Mm -hmm. But I think that also would apply to to CLEs as well.
0: Yeah, and so I guess what I'm trying to sort of bring around here is that we we talked about the fact that it can be difficult. For people who feel like they have a desire to teach, um, it can be difficult to get adjunct positions. It takes some time if you want to teach at that level, and it's a huge commitment, right? But for people who want to sort of uh, try their hand at doing this kind of thing and have a – Interest, uh, volunteering to speak and present at CLEs is very much easier. Much <laughs> very, easier. very attainable goal, right? Uh, the, the Florida Bar's appellate practice section puts on a lot of CLE every year. All the local bar associations uh, do that as well. And there's always seems like a market for people who are willing to take on that
1: commitment and and participate. And uh, you know another area you can look into is I was also as I was refresh or renewing my bar membership today, and playing around on the Florida Bar website. You can always link- log into the Speakers Bureau, um, and I don't. Re- you, I guess you could add a link to the podcast afterwards. Sure. but But um, there is a there is an area in which you can identify uh, topics on which you would like to speak and get put on a list. Oddly enough, appellate practice isn't listed in that list. Hmm. Uh, not sure why. We'll have
0: to look into that.
1: We'll have to look into that. I, I, I was thinking about shooting off an email, but I wasn't sure <laughs> who to do it to yet. Um, but, but there are lots of opportunities to be a CLE speaker. You just have to, just like going to a university or a college, you kind of just have to be a thorn in the right person's side and and um, get that spot.
0: And I do think that, that being a presenter at a CLE has certain benefits, too. In, in addition to some of the things we've already talked about, you know, the just the sort of practice generally of, of public speaking and that sort of thing. You know, being a CLE presenter gives you some additional professional exposure, which is nice.
1: Um, you know, and professional clout. Yes. admittedly. Uh, if you can speak eloquently and and um, intelligently on a topic, then you're going to be known as somebody who knows how to speak on that topic. It's going to give you a. A little more gravitas when you when you go speak to another group
0: That's right and it, it gets you known to more people you know, which is important it's maybe more important for us as appellate lawyers even than other types of lawyers you know uh, I have this discussion with, with marketing people here at the law firm all the time is that you know corporate lawyers need to be uh, out in the community meeting people who own businesses. Right to jump right. up new business, but appellate lawyers—a lot of our market is other lawyers. Right, lawyers who need the help of an appellate lawyer, as I always like to say, <laughs> uh, because most clients are not shopping for an appellate lawyer; they already have a lawyer, um, and their lawyer is shopping for a lawyer. So, I think for us in particular, being active in the in the bar and speaking at CLEs and being someone who is, you know, visible in that community is, is a big deal.
1: I think so too. And, and I, I've tried to be more visible outside of the appellate practice section, actually um, more recently. Um, But also because I feel like there's a lot to learn from other groups and other organizations too. And, and maybe I've been a little too closed in my appellate bubble that I, with all with all my friends and colleagues that I love that that we all visit with each other and can call each other anytime, um, but we have to get out there and and speak to and with and uh, trial attorneys and attorneys in other substantive areas of law to to really both market ourselves and to learn a little bit about what they do. Absolutely,
0: yeah. And so, if somebody who's listening to the podcast wanted to do that, if they wanted to get out there and do some uh, CLE presenting, what would you suggest? Where Where do you start?
1: Well, if somebody's out there from the appellate world, um, presumably that's where where most of your audience is from. I would have to assume that issues no one on appeal else is listening, right? <laughs> right. Um, first thing I do is. Well, admittedly, I I am somebody who you could contact, as are you, uh, with the statewide appellate practice section. Um, Neither of us handle the CLE programs, but both of us are heavily involved with the section. I was the outreach committee chair until today. That's right. (laughs) um, And we'll be taking on the diversity, uh, our new diversity committee. Um, But part of my goal with that is to bring in people who want to speak, who want other opportunities within the section. Um, And I'm happy to speak with anybody about um, finding avenues for doing that. Um, You can also directly contact our CLE coordinator for the appellate practice section, our our CLE committee chair, Kansas Gooden. um, And she will certainly speak with you and look for opportunities. Um, But then again, it might be easiest to go straight to your local bar association. Um, The county bars – I believe every single one has an appellate practice section, or if they don't, maybe you could be the person who starts one. If you're listening, um, they are always looking for speakers, or they're always looking for authors for uh, magazine articles, and that's you know yet another avenue to get involved is to um, start writing. And once you become, once you start writing on a on a subject. Um, you become known for your knowledge and, and intelligence on that subject, and maybe that's how you become a speaker on it next next time there's an opportunity. Um, so really it's kind of the same. I think it's the same thing that you would say for anybody just trying to get more involved in the appellate world at all, is write, talk to people, um, and ask around for opportunities. And, and,
0: and sometimes those opportunities might be pairing up with somebody else, Right, I know that as someone who has been, you know, ultimately in charge of putting together some of these CLEs, there can be a reluctance to turn over an hour of your program to someone that you don't know or have never seen present. Right, but there are ways to uh, volunteer to partner up with someone else to share in a presentation, or perhaps a good way to start can be uh, hosting a panel discussion. Being the person who just sort of um, you know coordinates that group and puts together the questions and that's not an easy job, but it's it's a potential way to get started too because I you know I, I know it can be sort of intimidating uh, to come out and try and give your first CLE to a group a room full of people that you are sure know more about the topic <laughs> than you do, but that's usually not the case and. Uh, you know, once you, once you find that, that niche of something that you can talk about, you know, work your way in, right? And uh, ultimately, uh, before long, you'll be the person, they'll be calling you right. uh, to give those CLEs.
1: Right. I, I think the biggest challenge for somebody just starting out is, is that intimidation factor. I think you can find the opportunities. So the long and the short of it, I guess, is for, for people who
0: are interested, it's just something, you know, you need to make the commitment to yourself, right, that this is something you want to do. Uh, start volunteering and get in and, and do it. I've, I've never seen a CLE presenter shouted down at the front of the room for for making a mistake, right, or for or for not offering the the opinions that the audience expected. That's uh, I mean, you certainly you want to be right and you want to add value, but it's probably not nearly as intimidating as we make it out to be in our own imagination.
1: Well, and that's another thing if. If you are concerned about being wrong, pick a subject area in which there is no wrong answer. So speak to your strategy in writing a brief or oral argument, something where it's opinion – Something where there is no right or wrong answer, where a case can't come out and tell you that you're, you're you're completely wrong and somebody can't hand this to you afterwards and say the entire premise of your of your discussion was was incorrect because i I think every speaker fears that a little bit that um sure that you, you never know if you've said something that there was a case that you missed and, and changes everything um, so the easy way to avoid that is just pick something that doesn't have a wrong answer. <laughs> um, and just talk about how you prepare for oral argument How you how you go about writing a brief How you um, There was another There was a CLE that we had planned at one point And it, it didn't happen for whatever reason But it was on how do you Value and assess a case To determine whether you're going to take it And how you're going to How you would bill for it um, And that's still uh, that idea is still floating out there Because it got cancelled last minute I don't think anybody actually did it So if you well, might, may not be floating out there too long because there's a podcast uh,
0: on that topic. But not, not, not to shortcut any CLE ideas, but we're going to be talking about that coming up.
1: I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. So yet another avenue uh, that is generally untapped, I think, is looking to other voluntary bar associations for speaking opportunities. Um, so I, I'm also the president-elect of the North Tampa Bar Association congratulations oh well thank you um, but and we're always looking for for speakers on different topics and there are so many different voluntary bar associations i recently attended the tampa bay voluntary bar conference which was about 15 different local bar associations uh i did not know such a conference existed there was it was just the voluntary bar leaders, so it was mm-hmm. Uh, One or two people from, and I'll just name off a couple. I believe the George Edgecombe Bar was there, the Hispanic Bar. Um, We had a representative from the St. Pete Bar appellate practice section, which was interesting. Um, Hall, Hillsborough Association of Women Lawyers. Um, The Fred G. Minnis Bar Association. And I apologize to anybody who I may be forgetting, but it was just an outstanding group of local bar associations, all the Asian Pacific Bar Association. They're all smaller organizations who are um, a little bit looking to expand their membership, but more just provide a different different resource for their members. Um, It's a different kind of um, experience uh, and knowledge base than you get from even your local county bar or the state bar. Not that one's better than the other. I'm involved in all three levels. I would, if you call them three levels, I've involved in all three, and I love all three of them. Um, but they're always looking for speakers, and they're always looking for members, and they always put on great events. Um, all of those associations. I've been to events of a number of them, and I love our North Tampa Bar events, and I love most of the other ones. They have a different feel to them. Um, they're more intimate, um, and speaking opportunities are a plum. It, it, it is a different kind of speaking experience in a, in a more intimate and, at least with the North Tampa Bar, a little less formal room uh, where there is a little more conversation. It seems a little more conversational um, than other places I've been. And so uh, that's another avenue. If you ever want to contact me and be a speaker for the North Tampa Bar, let me know. Um, but look, look to those avenues. Every county has a number of those organizations. You just have to take a look at them, and there are usually a lot of a lot of people who are part of them. And I feel like
0: we're backtracking a little bit here. But another uh, thing that the Florida Bar Pel Practice Section does is the telephonic CLEs. And so, if there is something that you wanted to present. Didn't necessarily want to stand in front of a room of people to do it. Those are done all in an audio format over the phone, or or over the internet, or whatever. But the presenters are usually by phone, uh, so there's some opportunity there. If you if you feel like you 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 want to have your materials that you can review, or or you know, I wouldn't recommend reading a script, but you know, you want to have more materials available. You're maybe not good with eye contact or whatever right. um, you can do that
1: telephonically and and nobody knows. That is another option <laughs> definitely. Uh, I've done a couple of the webinar formats. I will say uh, this may not be the same for everybody, but for me, a webinar format is more challenging um, and requires i don't want to say more practice but but it, it's it's a more difficult process for me because there is no feedback from your audience. Um, you don't know whether that lightly humorous statement hit or not. <laughs> um, and, and it's just hard to plow through material without sounding like you're plowing through material. Mm-hmm. Um, I would much rather be in front of people. as And I, I would not say that I, I am an extrovert whatsoever, but I would rather be in front of people because I feel more comfortable reading where they are and trying to move to where I think – I need to be to both make it more interesting and more informative for them and fitting what I'm talking about to the group. Um, a, a lot of my presentations, and this applies to both teaching at college and and doing CLEs, they've been much more free freeform. I use a, a rough outline, basically, of what I'm going to talk about and then just talk. Um, I try to be as interactive as possible. I try to draw audience members in as much as I can and for me, for my personality, sitting on a webinar pulls all of that away and makes it much harder for me to feel comfortable with what I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you've done a webinar before. I,
0: I have, and I, and I agree with you. I, I think it's. Um, I think some people might like it in the sense that they don't feel like they're on display, perhaps, um, but it is hard. Uh, for me, I'm always. Sort of reading the room, trying to make eye contact with people, see what 's right. interesting, you know move on when things are not, and even when i 'm teaching you know in the college courses, you know you can sort of tell when the room's getting flat and nobody's really interested, and you you kind of move on so yeah doing the, doing the webinars is difficult in that sense. Um, I think it might be easier maybe if you had another person in the room with you who is co-presenting or something so you can at
1: least play off each other a little bit. Conveniently, but we're not describing your podcast at all right now. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. That's not the whole setup for this entire 10-episode run. That's right. But
0: but yeah, you're right. And, and same thing here, right? I really have no idea how um, – these things are received it's it's a little bit tough it's it's probably getting easier (laughs) for me because i'm getting used to it now right but um yeah no that's a good that's a good point I, i guess my only point being is there are a number of different mediums you know uh that that can be explored for for teaching opportunities and like you said speaking opportunities speaking is always teaching in a way right right
1: right yeah I mean, I, I guess one thing I'd recommend for anybody thinking about doing something online with or so, anything without a live audience in front of you um, would just be to record yourself doing a little bit of it. Uh, not video; you don't have to because they're not going to see you. But but record yourself for five minutes or so and then play it back and see how you sound. I feel like I sound horrible um, <laughs> and, and flat, and, and I try to. I have to go back and try to liven it up without sounding like I've gone over over the top. Um, but I, I think there is there's a particular skill set that's associated with that, and it's something I'm working towards. Uh, but I don't know that I have it yet.
0: It is true. You you you, th- you know they say when you're on camera, a camera adds ten pounds. When you're on a microphone and an audio, it it takes like uh, you know ten levels of enthusiasm out of what you're saying. So you you have to make an effort to to be more up when you're talking into a microphone like that. You know, it's different when you and I are are sitting here face to face, it's easier. But when you're just when you're just talking into a microphone, it becomes very easy to be very monotone and, you know, uh boring.
1: (laughs) Yes, this is definitely where I see you the most lively, Dwayne. Yes. (laughs) For
0: sure. Well Jared, I really appreciate your time. I think you know I I think that a lot of the people that we know in the public community, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are already involved in, in teaching to some extent. I think it's just sort of natural for us and for our skill set. But I imagine there are others who are thinking about it and maybe thinking about teaching on other levels. So I hope that this will you know, get people to think about uh, some of the opportunities that are out there and, and maybe pursue them a little bit.
1: Absolutely. I, I think... I wouldn't have it any other way. I love teaching, um, but it's it's definitely a commitment. Um, and it's something that if you ever want to try first, uh, feel free to give me a call. Or honestly, I'm going to look at Dwayne across the table and suggest you can give him a call. But I'm always looking for guest speakers, and, and that's how I got into it. Um, so if you're looking for teaching students, uh, college students or law students, find somebody at the school that you want to teach at and see if you can drop in for – to to try out a class, Um, I I know the dean of my college specifically asked somebody if they would come in and guest teach my class uh, to guest teach my class next semester for that very reason. So I know it does happen, not even just at my own personal level, but with the deans as well. Is that they'll they'll sort of an audition, yeah, Yeah. and and it's almost it's not really an audition for the teacher or for the would be professor to see if they can handle it. as far as anybody watching them to see how they do, but it's more them coming to see if they really want to do this, if this is get, going to give them the experience that they want. Um, I guess it's a blend, but it's not a high pressure blend. At least, at least at the University of Tampa, in my experience, my limited experience. So, but feel free to call me, and I'd be happy to have you. You can you can drop in, um, hang out, and watch a class, or you can you can join in a in a conversational way about whatever topic area i'm talking talking about that day i'd be happy to have you um and dwayne is probably similar in most of his classes yeah yeah i would
0: love to have a guest speaker on a particular topic and i'm still waiting for my
1: invite over there dwayne
0: well you're welcome anytime um <laughs> we'll have to figure out uh, maybe you could talk on intellectual property or something that i know very little about <laughs> fair enough <laughs> and certainly anybody who wants to be a guest on the podcast can let me know too and we'll talk about that too There you go. Well, Jared, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way?
1: Sure. So you can contact me at DPW Legal. Uh, My email address there is jared, J-A-R-E-D, at ip-appeals.com. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm kind of, sort of, on Instagram, but not really, so don't try me there. Uh, Eventually, one day. Um, And, of course, I'm also heavily involved with the Florida Bar Appellate Practice Section, the Florida Bar Diversity and Inclusion Committee, um, somewhat involved with the HTBA. you can usually, you can probably get a hold of me through there if you ask the right people, and uh, the North Tampa Bar Association, and you can find all of those places online. So feel free to look me up anywhere. And, and we
0: will make sure your contact information is in the show notes. Fantastic. Which, as I always say, it's available in the podcast player of your choice or on the web. Jared, thanks so much for for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you coming again here on this uh, 10th episode. And uh, I'm sure we'll find an excuse to have you back in another 10 or so.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. I always have a great time here. And uh, I'll try to come up with something interesting for the next one. (laughs) Thanks, Jared. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Jared Krukar for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But that being said, if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at com. My contact info is always in the show notes that are available on your podcast player of choice and available on the show's website. Thanks again for listening. I'm really thrilled to have reached this 10 episode milestone and I'm excited with some great ideas for future shows. Please consider telling an appellate lawyer that you know about the show, maybe rate the show on iTunes and please consider using our sponsor commercial surety bond agency for your clients appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so that you're ready when the time comes. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.